to me, meditation is both a window and a mirror because you get to look. And I think a really good meditation is a, a window and you get to look into something about yourself that you can connect with. And I think great meditation is a mirror. And now you're trying to, now you're looking back upon yourself instead of into yourself and upon yourself. I think those are, those are different levels. And the better you get at these practices, you not only reflect on what you can be, what you were, but what you are. And I think those abilities to say, I, I know how I got to this point. I know where I would like to go. It's uncertain. No one can know where they're going to go, but knowing what I know now, having a full confident description of my present existence, I know where I can now take myself with confidence. Hello and welcome back to the Certain Uncertainty Podcast. So today we're going to be having a really fun conversation on mindfulness and we haven't really prepared too many questions per se. I mean, yes, we have, but we're overlooking our questions and realizing that the state of the mindfulness space is pretty sporadic and that it branches off into a lot of different directions. And so instead of really having a more of a structured question set that we can address. Uh, we're going to do this a little bit more informally and, and try to just unravel the basics of mindfulness, how it takes different forms. And, and, you know, we'll see where we go from there. And we'll try to tie in some consciousness ideas, talk a little bit into unconsciousness and see how these mechanisms in our mind play a role in the mindfulness process. And um, without further ado, let's just jump right into it. So Let's just start with, you know, what is mindfulness in our minds? And again, this isn't necessarily to say that our, our definition here is scientifically correct in its most absolute sense. It's really an extrapolation from a lot of the things we've been reading about mindfulness and a little bit of the research there. And spoiler alert, a lot of the research in mindfulness takes a lot of different approaches in terms of methodology and data collection. So hence why we're not gravitating into that area so much. So anyways. What is mindfulness? Let's just let's just jump into that one. It's been an interesting topic over, I would say, the past couple of years now, as we see a lot more of these applications and platforms coming up where people have new tools and access to practicing different levels of meditation and mindfulness. And I see a lot of these questions kind of get thrown around in different contexts where people are saying, what actually is this practice? How does it actually impact your lifestyle? How do you go about addressing mindfulness and meditation in your personal life? So I think it's really important to start off with addressing the definitions of what we think mindfulness and meditation are and what, what that actually means. So I think to us, meditation and mindfulness are connected, but they do have separate um, definitions. So mindfulness is a more general practice and school of thought where you are paying specific direct attention to some sort of a thought train or practice reflecting upon yourself, your memories, your existence as a conscious person. Meditation is the tool that allies with mindfulness and allows you to go into a state of mind or a state of consciousness where you're able to address these specific thoughts in a structured or unstructured way. Because there's many different approaches, whether that comes through different religions, different philosophies, different um, kind of like gurus that go through these levels of meditation where we're still uncovering the the modern implications of how meditation and mindfulness really feed into a more holistic and self-aware lifestyle. So it's really, really cool to see these things come up as a more popular, not trend, but practice that people are trying to incorporate into their lives. Yeah, let me jump in on that. So, I mean, in just building this causal relationship between mindfulness and meditation, mindfulness is more or less the output 
whereas meditation is the methodology to achieve some output. And so that's why I say mindfulness has such levels of variation because output is, is dependent on some individual's ability to actually construct this practice of meditation. And everyone's practice of meditation is entirely different. Are you using, you know, specific breathing exercises to get yourself into this state of mind? Are you using some kind of mantra process? Are you using koanic Zen Buddhist phrases? Are you, you know, just going through a normal day-to-day behavior like washing dishes and kind of seeing how mindfulness takes a takes a huge role while you're just kind of monotonously doing things. That's another another way to do meditation. It can be very meditative to wash dishes, right? And so, you know, I just wanted to kind of fill in the gap there and, and, and kind of describe that that there's many different ways to achieve this output of mindfulness. That meditation is one sector of methodology that we can really, really jump into. And and I think that's where it gets really interesting though, because we have this methodology controlling the causal outputs. And so what what exactly, like let's just jump into this, this mindfulness output. What exactly is the output of a mindfulness experience? You know, is it is it a better understanding of some type of emotional experience? And I'm really just kind of asking anecdotally, because you and I have been practicing meditation for a while now. And I, I'm really just kind of curious what what outputs we've observed, and and maybe we can just kind of jump into there because once we see the outputs of the mindfulness, well, we can then really reel back into how methodologies get us there. Mm. Um, so that's kind of where I'm going right now. Yeah, definitely. I feel like from my perspectives, where I think of the literature that I've read that really focused my interest and brought me into this exploration of the mind and of mindfulness and meditation, I think the top three and there's there's probably half a dozen or more, but the top three that I found have been really fascinating have usually come from some sort of a religious or spiritual based background. And a lot of this is what revolves around the Eastern medicine and this holistic religion, spiritual aspect of where does mindfulness and meditation come from? How does one employ it? And what is the goal? And I think the question you asked was really well placed is the outcome of mindfulness or what are we looking to gain from this, if anything? And I think what most often comes into this frame of reference is whether it be reflection of your ego and why those those different philosophies and those different practices that you, you have exist, or how can we change parts of the subconscious into the conscious reflection? So when you look at your actions and your reactions to things and previous memories that had maybe an unknown impact on the development of who you are, reflecting upon these things and realizing that you're lifting up the hood and looking underneath to see, oh, these are all the mechanisms that are at play. I didn't realize there was a pressure system over here that was really pushing on another part of this overall engine. And that engine being how you build and optimize your personality and who you eventually become. And I think mindfulness is a really strong practice of looking back and reflecting upon these things. But the question always stands, how long, how consistently, in what form of practice? And I think you touched on something earlier as we were we were trying to flesh out this conversation is the development of the psyche is so um, unique to every person. There are idiosyncrasies in every person's psyche. So there is no one size fits all. There is no one practice fits for everyone. And it's an interesting kind of amalgam of different approaches and practices that people have to reflect on as they're building out their own mindfulness Goal. Right. So let me let me just also present a, a quick dichotomy there. So there is, I would say, two different ways, uh, at least I'm thinking right now, that you can segregate mindfulness types. So it's like 
you have one, which is an internal reflection system on what you've thought in the past or what you're thinking in the future. But there's also the mindfulness of distancing yourself or disconnecting yourself entirely from that thoughts and, and, and placing your attention entirely on the external environment, right? And so like, what are these sounds that I'm obtaining? What are the feelings, the sensations in my feet, my, my body, you know, how does that all then map into this experience of generating memories, right? So like when I am in the, in the process of absorbing some type of stimuli, that has an inherent effect on my ability then to reflect or to predict. And so like there's, there's, you know, different stages of this mindfulness, right? I would say the, the stage one is more or less getting in tune with the environment. Don't even worry about what you're thinking, you know, leave that off into the, on the back burner for now. Just see if you can shift your attention to things that don't directly revolve necessarily around your head, right? Um, in that, you know, pay attention to the things in your environment that have this type of stimuli that influences you, right? And, 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 and don't necessarily let it influence, but let it just kind of be there. Let it be present in the moment, right? Once you're able to do that, right, I would say this is step one of mindfulness. Maybe then you can kind of bring it into, into step two which is where you get into the more wandering mind um, of mindfulness, which is, okay, I've, I've, I've become aware that these things can just exist in, in place of my normal thinking patterns. And I don't have to necessarily act on them. This is the, this is the very uh, challenging part of mindfulness. I can have a really bad or good thought and let it be there. I won't act on it. And so the impulse control is another aspect of the mindfulness. And, and we're going to get into, I'd say, like the practical application of why any of this is valuable. But I mean, from, from, from ground level one, we have to understand what we're doing in the thinking pattern process, right? Where does our attention gravitate towards when we're practicing meditation to obtain this state of mindfulness, which is more or less an observer mindset. It's, it's okay, these are these things in the environment, there's these things in these abstract forms of consciousness that I have, and they, they exist in some capacity. I don't know what capacity, I don't know what it is exactly, but I'm just gonna watch them. I think an interesting point that you, you just touched upon was the relationship of the action and the observer. And in so much of, of structure, mind structuring contexts, they often refer to these agents within the mind. And as you build a society of the mind, there are these different agents and operators and observers looking at the actions and reflections upon which the mind fulfills tasks or goes through thoughts. And I would, I, we absolutely have to get into how mindfulness is a practice that allows the reflection of the agent, the observer, and the act. And are those all one amalgam of a character? Are those all separate forms of the psyche and how you go through extra attention to the actor or extra attention to the observer or extra attention to the agent? Mm -hmm. And if the agent is the one who enacts a task, the observer is the one looking at the result of that task and you know, all of these different layers of, of being and how mindfulness allows us to pay attention to each one of those individually. Right, and, and, and so like, Again, there's two sides of the coin, right? It's there's this reductionist approach where we can break down these conscious actors, these agents in the mind that are saying, okay, you have this stimuli, think this next. Okay, you have this next thought, then think this, right? And then there's this feedback loop. But there's also, and I would say that's the reductionist approach, kind of breaking apart the mind and seeing this has this effect, this mediates this effect, this amplifies this effect. 
But on the other side, you can say, okay, well, what is the more constructive process? Is there one central, almost cellular automata that defines as a fundamental unit that defines exactly what mindfulness is? And and so, like, if you look into the early Egyptian societies, uh, a lot of their deities actually revolve around attention as the constructor of any processes of thought. And so their deity is the actual uh, eye of Horus, the, the, the god of attention, right? And, and so in, in some sense, uh, you can take it and say, okay, there's different forms of attention, or you can say there's only one form of attention. And that one form of attention then has various branches through which those agents are then created. And so it really just depends what type of hierarchy you want to start with when you're looking at how the brain or the mind actually constructs attentive pathways of thought. Um, and, and so, I mean, like, I don't have a preference necessarily. I just like, well, what works, right? If, if you can conceptualize one point of attention as, as your, you know, your central, uh, central catalyzer into thinking specific ways, that's great. If you need to break it up right? And think, okay, I need, to, I need to access this agent of attention to think this way, then do that, right? There is no, I would say, formulaic route to doing this. Um, but at another level, there is a reason why different ancient societies have, have constantly brought up the idea of attention and its role and power of constructing human behavior. Mm -hmm. it's, um, the, it's the monastic, it's like the monk kind of framework where in every single culture, as far back as, as we have recorded history, there is some individual within that, that community who has dedicated a, a fulfilled life of attention to reflection, meditation, and some sort of a connection with a deity or using this as a, as a framework or a channel of communication with an, an ulterior, you know, being or power. And it's so interesting. It's like, okay, now when we look at this, are we are we approaching meditation as a as a channel through which we can address deities or gods or communication like how is meditation different than prayer are they similar and does the existence of a point or a person or a being that which you're talking to increase the level of impact that your meditation or prayer has on your psyche that's right that's right and it's all part of the so it's all part of the self-reflection process, right? The self-awareness probably is, is a little bit closer to what, where, where it should be. Uh, reflection in, implies another process. It's, it's that you've become aware of something and then you're actively trying to reassess how that thing has affected you in some way, right? Whereas awareness is, is really just the first step. You have to be aware to then reflect. So, right, mindfulness is more concerned, I would say, with the self-awareness process and then the reflection process, it gets overlaid on top of it just as a, as a function of us being humans. Uh, we can't necessarily just be aware. And that's what I mean. Like people that, that say like, I have just pure awareness. It's like, what does that mean really? Uh, because there is still some process of interpretation at, a, at, a, at an unconscious level of you dealing with the environment at all times. You know, we are, we are moving through time. It's not like we can just be static in any given time and just be like, okay, all my, all my awarenesses are static as well. It's like, no, we keep moving. And it's this dynamic, uh, continuum of, of thought, interpretation, feeling, right. Uh, and, and sometimes behavior, uh, which is, which is the, the kind of holy triad of, of connectivity there. Um, so I mean, like maybe let's just describe on, you know, what is the value of, of obtaining, obtaining a mindfulness state? You know, because I mean, like it, it has a lot of different benefits, but I want to kind of come at it to a crux. Like what exactly are we doing 
without saying, oh, okay, it'll give you a little bit more space in your brain so you can think about, like, I don't want to go into that. I want to kind of jump more back into like the core aspects. It's like, okay, is it that I'm more aware of the present? Me being more aware of the present allows me to be more aware of options that I have. And then being more aware of those options gives me more power and autonomy as an individual. You know, like you see what I mean? Like what is the actual route of, of, of affect, right? I think from kind of anecdotal stories and readings from mindfulness and meditation, especially when talking about the framework of, of quote, living in the present or existing more in the present to me that it's kind of a late, it's a label that could mean a lot of different things. But to me, what, what I like to compare it against or create kind of this analogy is when you have practice that allows you to live more in the present, it's as if you're strengthening the roots that you move through time with in that moment. Because I feel like far too often the way people live and exist in today's society is they're always thinking about the past and how they can iterate or if I had done this differently or if I could redo that again now that I have this current knowledge, I would be in this position instead of this position. And now they use that and then they flip it. They look into the future and they go, okay, so knowing what I know now, what do I have to worry about in the future so that I can not have to reflect and wish I did something different. So we're always looking back. We're always looking forward. And I think the practice of meditation and mindfulness strengthens the roots of the present. And it doesn't dull the forward or backward looking perspectives that every human being inevitably does. You can't live without looking forward and you can't learn without looking backward. Mm -hmm. But far too often, those outweigh the present moment where people actually feel like they're not actually moving through time. They're only they're only moving through a forward and backward lens. And I think that presence allows people to not only appreciate the circumstances with which they're in, but also, as you said, have more options to make better decisions moving forward. So let me, let me dig into those, the roots there in that analogy, like in developing more roots, now moving into the practical life side, does that, does that to, to you mean more options? Is that, what, what exactly does like the developing of the roots mean? Is it being more grounded just in general to your, your present state of being, or is it? Yeah, I think so. Because to me, meditation is both a window and a mirror because you get to look. And I think really good meditation is a, a window and you get to look into something about yourself that you can connect with. And I think great meditation is a mirror and now you're trying to now you're looking back upon yourself mm. instead of into yourself and upon yourself. I think those are those are different levels and the better you get at these practices, you not only reflect on what you can be, what you were, but what you are. And I think those abilities to say I I know how I got to this point. I know where I would like to go. It's uncertain. No one can know where they're going to go, but knowing what I know now, having a full confident description of my present existence, I know where I can now take myself with confidence instead of kind of stumbling through, through events, trying your best from what you've learned, you can, you can step with intention. And I think it gives you that intention because you're more grounded. You're more rooted in this moment. You're not, you're not missing this moment by reflecting on the past or looking into the future. I think just, I want to highlight that word intention. I, what a difference intention setting makes, uh, in, in terms of mindfulness, you're, if you're distancing yourself from your past and your present or your future, right, then then what is the objective, right? Is it, you know what I mean? And so if you, if you have an intention that you set before going into this process, mm -hmm. it'll help subconsciously guide you through 
moving into the present in the way you want, um, which is so, so, so key. That's like step one, right? Okay, so let's let's build a step process, right? So it's like you set an intention, you dedicate yourself to building some type of self-awareness, right? The window. Then it's, there's something in between the window and the mirror, right? There's something, there's some kind of conflict, right? It's like, I want to make an interpretation for something that I'm observing. At, at first glance, something comes in, okay, I hear a sound. It sounds like X, Y. Why did I make that interpretation, right? I'm reflecting, I'm moving straight to the mirror, but, but hold up, right? Like that's going to keep me going into this loop of reflection, 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 and I'm going to lose where I'm looking through because I'm going to just, you know, go right into the reflection, mm -hmm. right? And I'm going to lose about what actually is. I'm only going to be looking at the reflection of it um, instead of just looking out the window, right? And so like that's where the, the, the challenge is, is moving from the self-awareness step into the reflection. Like that, that process, I think, is a little bit disconnected from mindfulness. A lot of the reflection actually happens after the process of mindfulness. It's an aftermath. It's like, oh, I was in this state of observation for 20 minutes. And then all this, all these thoughts that I, that I was restricting or, you know, I, I, don't, I don't mean to say this as a uh, action that you consciously do, but because but, you have to make it unconscious for it to actually work. And this is why it takes a long time to develop this skill. But, but in, in, in developing this unconscious uh, constraint of reflection in the mindfulness, you can just be in the moment, let your mind rest, right? Once you've let your mind rest, you can come back with a fresh pair of eyes on your thoughts that you just had. And, and, and I mean, I think that in itself is so, 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 so valuable. It's like, how, how, how valuable is a fresh set of eyes on, on anything, really? It's like, oh, it's a fresh perspective. You know, how can you create a fresh perspective from yourself? Why, so without getting too, too off, off topic, yeah, yeah. why do you think people are so commonly struggling with stillness? Too many stimuli. Um, too many stimuli that promote reward systems that have feedback cycles of attention. Definitely, it's just ob like objectively from say say you had a, another species of conscious, you know, an alien shows up to Earth that has Homo sapien genetic similarities, and they come and look at us, and they're like, they can't sit still for five minutes, five minutes, one minute. Turn off your phone. Turn off your computer. Don't read a book. Don't listen to music. Just sit and see where your mind wanders or try and focus on one thing, one thought without your mind wandering for five minutes. It's really hard. Well, I mean, at some level, I would also make the argument that as a species, humans are really, really fast uh, in terms of just making <laughs> molecular assemblies in general, just, you know, all these molecules in our body are created so, 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 so quick. And amongst all other species, for some reason, we have specific types of molecules that can dome our brains and neurotransmitters that we create and allow us to think at these cadences that other species might not be able to. And so with our own superpower, I'll call it, of attention, our ability to switch so fast of attention making systems, it comes with a dual edged sword, right? It's like, you know, it, we can easily just abuse it. We can easily abuse it into stimuli that doesn't allow us getting to the next step, which is reflection. Yeah. And, and and so it's like, I don't mean to say we're overstimulated because you're just overstimulated with 
the resources that don't allow you to live life uh, in a way that is reflective in a personal and meaningful way, I, I, I guess. And, and I'll, I'll probably have to reel back on that. You're um, overstimulated with the resources that don't allow you to live life. In a personal and meaningful way. Right. So it's like live, live life at full volume. Like, like, like we're consuming a lot of stimuli that we have self-produced. And so we're in this kind of closed loop system of absorbing the stimuli that we generate. But we're, we're lacking the diversity of other ways of perceiving and, and absorbing stimuli. So we're, we're under-stimulated in, in terms of variety, over-stimulated in, in a monotonous way. We're overstimulated by things that have lacking of variety. So do you think do you think people are finally starting to either consciously or subconsciously realize this? So is this a reason maybe we've gone decades now where people are finally collectively being like, ah, we're just generally uncomfortable or like overall just a heightened level of anxiety and anxiousness socially, personally, mentally. I feel like now what what was the switch that flipped for there now to be so many different apps like Headspace and Calm and books that are talking about how to reinvent meditation and mindfulness in your life? Why are these so popular now? I would say it comes largely from an awareness of originality and scaling economies. Like before you like going all the way back into ancestral societies there was a way to do it. It was built on tradition. But as we move forward to a world where innovation is constantly being more and more incentivized, as it should be in my eyes, uh, with innovation comes new products and whatever, right? We've been there. It's like, because there is such a concern of innovation and the rate at which we're moving is so, so, so crazy fast, we get anxious when we're not feeling like we're consuming original sources, I, I, I think that that we're we're lacking a specific stimuli diversity that will give us inspiration to think in in broader ways and and when we realize that we're limited in our thinking pattern we get anxious it's like why can't i just conceive of something that no one else has why can't i just be original i'm seeing everyone on you know all these social media platforms producing these content types that and, and what they don't realize is just how massive the population entering that media is. And so that's what I mean by scalable is that, yeah, you're, you're biasing yourself into thinking that a lot of people actually are original, but in reality, humans are not that original. We're tribal creatures where monkey see monkey do, you know, and, and this is, this is the, the biggest, biggest challenge. And, th and this is where mindfulness comes into, right? It's like, oh, you're not constructing new ways of thinking that are helpful and conducive to your lifestyle. Well, what are you consuming that lacks uh, an inherent uh, variety. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to consume a variety. And this is where you get into the, all the different social media channels of how they're generating content for you, how they're putting you into a box and how mindfulness, you know, can probably put some work onto that, you know, be, be aware of the patterns of stimuli that you're absorbing in the first place. Yeah. What really fascinates me and I, I try and wonder what, what changed is mindfulness and meditation practices today are coming from a source from the past. A lot of what we're building on today is practices that our ancestors used to do, previous generations from centuries and decades ago. They did it. They had these tools, they had shamans, they had religion, they had all these philosophies. How did they know how to do it right? Or how did they know where to start? Why did they start in the first place? Did they start so far ago that it was ingrained in our genetics to need something like this? And then over time, we just kind of lost touch 
with the necessity of mindful practice? Or did we socially evolve past this practice to see it as not impactful anymore as we go through a life full of microtransactions that we don't think about the necessity for using our time in such a reflective way? Like it really makes me curious how they they got it right generations ago. We lost it. And now we're recognizing that it is something that we still need and we're trying to bring it back. Well, I, I think in the tribal setting, it's close. It's knit tight. And so you can see affects really, really quickly in your cultural close unit, right? Whereas now we're disconnected from, from this sense of being attentive to one another, which is a very weird thing to say. We're, we're the most hyper-connected, and I feel like people have been saying this for a while, but we're actually also most disconnected uh, just because we're not absorbing the right type of stimuli in my mind to elicit these types of of breathing room feelings. I need some breathing room, you know? It's yeah. like we don't feel that way because... Well, I mean, at a, at a simple level, we're we're over amplifying our dopamine receptors, which are rewarding, and they convince us that what we're doing is habitually correct. Well, what correct means, I don't know. The brain has its own mechanism of asserting value, right? That that, that is underneath our own thinking patterns, perhaps in some sense. Um, so, like in, in my eyes, it's like we don't have nearly the the same type of community building experiences that we to test out these types of things and, and see them work and see how they feel and see how they allow us to make relationships in the same way because we're all on zoom you know and and, and we're, we're not we're distanced from all, all the body language all the all the different physical sensation all the different smells and so forth that we would normally be aware of mm-hmm. um and so that's what i mean by the, the variety of the stimuli has been reduced greatly uh, and so like in the tribal society, I feel like they just had so much freaking variety of, of stimuli just from being out in the, in the nature that they're like, okay, there's got to be a way to like center myself and, and, and figure out and, and so like, you know, attention, right? Yeah. That's their yeah. basic fundamental unit of currency in the tribe. Oh, that's really interesting. So I guess given that we're, we're looking back on how we can recreate practices that help with mindfulness and meditation. Now, how would you describe for people who are trying to get an end-to-end grasp of why the practice and consistency is so important? Like what is a metaphor that we can use to establish this, this muscle of meditation and mindfulness? And why can I not meditate tomorrow and have significant differences and improvements you know, noticeable in my life? Like why does it actually take years what what's happening yeah i mean this is this is i think the biggest controversy between pharmacology and then perception neuroscience is that to actually have a potent effect on some architecture of neurons you want to innervate some type of drug boom hit a receptor face and it'll cause a neuron to release at a specific action potential, right? And that's really quick when you have a drug because it's forcing it to happen. But over time, we know that humans are constantly in the state of change, right? And, and so we can actually use our own minds to make those connections. It's extremely difficult. Like even me saying it, you're like, what the hell are you talking about? And like, that's why it takes so long is because you to even conceptualize what I'm talking about takes years. Just Just thinking about it. Right, it takes a lot of thought. And then you actually have to practice it. And then it's like, oh, this takes a long time. And so like, here's here's a study. Ba- basically, another way to, to, to kind of elicit a very similar effects that meditation is, is psychedelics. And 
And, and, and the reason is, at least from the neuroscientific perspective, is that a lot of these systems, both psychedelics and meditation, suppress what is called the default mode network, which is in control of a lot of the ego. Uh, at least that's what we've theorized. It depends on your definition of ego. But the psychedelic has extreme suppression of the default mode network on first drug use, right? Whereas over about 20 years for the meditating group, it takes to reach the same level of, of, of default mode network suppression. And even still, it's not even up to the level of on the peak of a psychedelic experience, right? And so like the idea with psychedelics as building up to the meditation, right? And so this is kind of how you can shorten the process is get your brain to experience what it feels like to suppress this default mode network. And obviously this is all abstract. No one has like a default mode network and like, oh, that's what that is. I don't know what it is. So neuroscience doesn't know what it is. It's just a, a category to describe a region or locus of the brain that controls activity. It's all it is. Don't think about it, anything in the naming convention. Anyways, so getting your brain familiar with what it feels like to make that suppression of the ego can then become really, really useful so that when you try to meditate again without psychedelics, you know what it kind of feels like. And, and, and so that's a lot of the big value in, in kind of shortening the process of getting good at meditation, at least if you do it effectively and in the right settings, of course. There's a whole podcast about psychedelics that we released and, and we talk about that in more depth. But, you know, that's that's to me where, where it comes down to and in, in being able to practice this. Um, at another level... We have to understand that at any given moment, we are constantly overriding our own memories. And this is going to sound really weird. And we've talked about this, you and I, Joe. But like when we have a memory of an experience, we don't have the full richness, the full resolution of a memory. We see it based on salience patterns, based on things that were really important in the moment. And then we build a story based on what those important moments are. But there's a ton of monotony, monotony that we're, we're neglecting from that story. And over time, we, we continue to focus on those very, very important moments even more, neglecting the ones of lesser importance, and then building another story off of it. And as we move even further in time, we, we usually converge it down to one important thing that happened into a memory, and then build an entirely different story revolving around that one thing. Right, And this is the idea of how I think procedural memory, the, the idea of what I'm going to do overwrites episodic memory, what I did do. Right? And so if we're, if we're constantly in this relationship where what we think to be true is overriding what we thought was true, right? mindfulness steps in and says, remove all of that crap. Just focus on this specific moment. This is the memory that you need to have. And that being is a state where we're not constantly overriding and, and biasing ourselves as to what we think and what we should be and how we should behave based on this fickle and low resolution thing that happened. And so it's powerful because it allows us to distance ourselves from normal ways of coping in a sense. It's like we don't necessarily need to cope because we, we have fickle memories and, and, and the way we perceive this thing that was maybe bad or good may not even be true in the first place. How do you go about, though, addressing the, the change that mindfulness can make on a procedural memory or, or an episodic right. memory? So one in the past, how can you say mindfulness steps in? So say you have a memory that is not, it, it's not specific or it's not exact to what actually happened. Is the exact memory 
still there and then there's layers on top of it that your brain has tried to fill in the gaps or is it cut and pasted together you kind of have a general memory of how this this event went how does how does mindfulness help resolve that or does the practice of mindfulness help prevent that i wouldn't say the practice of mindfulness helps us be more aware that our memories can move in terms of content okay so it doesn't help prevent doesn't I mean we're we can't necessarily change our our basic uh neurochemistry and how that functions in in a sense, but we can be aware that how we perceive and generate memories isn't necessarily always true, and that that we can delude ourselves into thinking a specific way and that has a negative behavioral output as a as a consequence, and that's what we're preventing. We're preventing the negative behavioral consequences from a memory that lacked resolution of truth, okay, right. In, in 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 the most simple sense, I think. Well, this is, I mean, this is a really complicated topic. Like this yeah. aspect of neuroscience, memory generation, memory reformation. This is really complicated. Yes. And I think the way, or at least the metaphor that I've really tried to break it down in the practice of mindfulness is this valley that has two peaks on each side. So on one side of the valley, on the first peak, stands the conscious aware self. And that's where your your mind and your actions perform. That's where you stand as a as your your presence. And then across the other side of the valley is the ego and the subconscious and actions that may impact the conscious self, but you don't directly see this channel or this flow of information from the ego unconscious to the conscious self that's performing things. And I feel like with meditation and mindfulness, Every day, every session that you you practice this skill and develop this muscle, it's actually putting one more brick while building the bridge that connects these two peaks from, from side to side. And you're actually acknowledging and, and recognizing where this flow of information travels from the ego and the unconscious to the self and the conscious. And it lets you look at your ego and your experiences and your, your memories, whether they be procedural or episodic, and say, oh, this, this event that impacted my ego and the reason the reasons why I am the way I am, I can actually watch this piece of my memory traverse across the bridge and come in to impact my current self. But now that I see this pattern happening, it's not coming up through the ground and coming from an unknown place. As I watch this event that has an impact on my ego, which inherently has an impact on the way I act, I can see this happen. And the recognition of seeing this happen allows you to actually change or reflect differently on the way you want to have that manifest in yourself. Mm. So a, a better, I guess, higher understanding, and some people may call this, you know, on the journey to enlightenment, or however you want to phrase this, this spectrum, the strength of your bridge, whatever you want to add on top of it, you're now recognizing with mindfulness, where your past has brought you until today. And now when new things come at you, or you experience new things, the recognition patterns, or at least the filters that you've now installed, allow you to say, oh, this is how I react to something like this, instead of just reacting to it. Mm, I, I think that's a really good analogy, specifically the word filtering here. Like when we go through this process of meditation, I would, based on what you just said there, like I would say you're, you're recreating a filtering mechanism. Every single time you're doing it, you're, you're trying to you have some filtering mechanism going into it about how you're looking at the world and how you're interpreting from there. You go into meditation and you come out, there's a different, there's a little bit of tweak of how you filter things, of how you're selecting things to be into your awareness and then your reflection. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really astute point, actually. Like 
that that over time we could actually develop a metric of selection based on individuals meditating, right? Like we could say, okay, well, what items are you considering? And, and we could, you know, from a research perspective, really see how the brain builds out this selection algorithm, I'll call it, right? I mean, I understand it's a molecular algorithm or some kind of biochemical al algorithm of selection, but, you know, abstracting it down to, to the level of language, right? It's, it is a whole new filtering. I wouldn't say a whole new, it's, it's a slight tweak to a filtering, right? It's, it's adding a little bit color, color or something like that, or or removing a little bit of color in these areas. But it's never like changing the absolute morphology of everything. Yeah. Um, well, unless you go through a really life changing psychedelic experience. Well, I can't wait till we see something like that. Like what you said, like the quantitative aspect of right. the brain. It's it's like especially with something as as not soft, but it's not a hard science. It's a soft science of mindfulness. You can't. There's no mouse study you can do. There's no primate no. animal study you can do. You can't you can't communicate to a non-human, I want you to meditate. You can't put them in any sort of environment to encourage mindfulness in an animal, which in and of itself, that topic, that that dichotomy between us and, and other beings is like, do you have to have some minimum threshold of awareness of consciousness to be able to reflect on the self? Right. How do I know the monks aren't BSing me? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, how do I know they're just sitting there and they're just thinking about, you know, uh, getting on TikTok all day? Right. Like, I mean, obviously it sounds hilarious, but like, what is proof that I have meditated? Yeah. And, and, I, and I would say it's how connected do you feel? And then that even has merit of, of how do you, how do you create a metric of connection? Yeah. And it's like, well, what do you mean by connection? Is it that you have the ability to engage in conversation for this amount of time? Or is it that you have this many people that you're connecting, you know, you see what I mean? And so it's like, we have to, at least at some level, figure out a way to interact on a multimedia mm -hmm. to see the selection process. I mean, when I, when I walk into, you know, Joe's mental imagination lab, and I try and think about the experiments that I would love to try and see, it would be to take, you know, a, a fresh brand new member of a monastic lifestyle who has who is known to complete or who, who has said i will completely dedicate my life to the monastic studies of mindfulness buddhism meditation whatever whatever they want to focus on say he's like 15 16 like when they when they first join the monastery and take an, an mri of their brain mm -hmm. every single day right. could you imagine 365 by times 50 images and then all put a time lapse over them and just watch the different connections and growth and regions of activity spark, that would, that would blow my mind. Well, I would love to see something the, like the that. The biggest challenge there is that you would also need to monitor lifestyle. This is where people fail in clinical labs is that they neglect the influence of lifestyle, just basic things like diet, exercise, sleep. And they don't use that as, a, as an additive factor in, in looking at how meditation actually i mean some do but not in full full detail i mean so i guess the, the baseline adjustment would have to be someone who his or her twin who lives at the monastery and has the exact same thing every day but doesn't meditate but doesn't right have and, a mindfulness like, practice so that's not even a, that's not even a baseline though. yeah it's that's like, so hard because then you would literally need them doing the same like to, to actually build a control and isolate meditation you would need them doing the same behaviors at the same time 
because their circadian rhythms would be synced to those things. I think, I mean, inevitably and unfortunately, the way we will have to approach this type of study and data in the future is not on a single subject compared to baseline analysis. That's impossible. You can't do that. The way we're going to have to do this is amass incredibly large amounts of data and create distributions and averages and look at the, the curve of growth in in conjunction with all the lifestyle habits right so you need a whole laundry list exactly. of potential recreation times how long do you do these things and then you can really see peace in meditation as an actual mediator of lifestyle so you have to have probably some some sort of like blind criteria where you have 15 different parameters in common across both parties, create, you know, thousands of data points over a period of time of these individuals, create your distribution curves, and then compare against another large data set of people who have those 15 or right. 10 parameters, but also mindfulness. It's and, really hard. And then on top of that, so we're not even there yet, right? So on top of that, you also need to standardize the route of meditation as well. So like you need to actually standardize the the steps, right? Going through like looking through the window, you know, uh, building this awareness. What are those exact steps, and how do I make sure people have some similarity to that 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 thinking pattern in the first place? Because there's different types of meditations. How do I know? You know, I can't just say those two people are meditating. It's like no, no, no. That guy was using mantra meditation, and that guy was using. You see what I mean? Yeah. And I mean so that level of granularity is going to be. That's that's even further away from even just saying, even having a quantitative difference or discrepancy between, oh, right. these people meditate daily for life and these people don't look at the neuronal patterns of growth and activity that showed up here at age 20 so, or here at 30. So, I mean, what you got to do is then probably loop all meditations in one thing and be like, you got to just do them all. Right. Yeah. Or, 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 I don't know. Or right? just do it consistently. Yeah. It's hard. That's That's what makes this... That's what makes this field of study so difficult to quantitate and, and, and describe to people because with no quantitation, this practice in this realm relies solely on anecdotal qualitative reflection. And that's so so challenging because there are confounding factors that it's, it's like I can... I can be unhappy with my current lifestyle and then one day I decide to meditate, prioritize my sleep and eat more vegetables and I feel great. And it's like, well, how much of each actually had an impact on the whole? It's like, well, the sleeping, the sleeping, good eating probably had a huge impact, but I can't say I started meditating and I feel great now. It's like, well, which one had, how, sorta, do you right? weight, how do you weight it? Yeah. So that's what makes it lifestyle. So I mean, yeah, this is this is the next the next step, though. I mean, we've we've put out the variables that we know that we need to control. Now it's about building technology that revolves around that. And you know, a lot of social media is on that level, but they don't have the standardization of the demography, the people in question. So you have to be very selective there too. And so I mean, we're running we're running a little bit long here, and I just kind of wanted to wrap up. And uh, I think we've we've kind of hit all the different heads in some sense and i think we'll definitely need a mindfulness part two where we actually bring one of the experts onto one of these types of mindfulness onto the show and have them explain their process of achieving this mindfulness output and etc but anyways this has been uh mindfulness episode certainly uncertainty podcast thank you so much for listening um yeah thanks everyone